Well, thank you, Barclay, very much for reading our Bible text for us this evening. So if, if please keep Romans chapter 3 in front of you as we'll be looking at that as we go through our time together this evening. If you're anything like me, and you grew up with siblings, then we will all be finally attuned with a very tuned sense of justice. Particularly if we think one sibling has been treated differently and rather better than us. For me, growing up, I had three older sisters, and they often felt that I was being treated better than they had been at their age, particularly when it came to pocket money. I was getting more pocket money than they were when I was their age. This gave me a bit of an interest in mathematics. Um, I took a bit of an interest in inflation and compounds and all that stuff. And so I wanted to say to them, well, actually, I'm getting less money than you because of the value of the pound and the penny when it came to sweets was very different to when you had it. And so your money went much further than mine. So I should be getting more money. It's not fair, we cry. And we don't stop saying that once we stop receiving pocket money, do we? How much of our news broadcasts and social media focus on the idea that it's not fair? Whether that is Matt Hancock, for instance, daring to show his face on I'm a celebrity, get me out here and appear in the final. Or whether it's Jeremy Hunt and his new budget with all its tough measures when it comes to taxes or something much, much worse. We cannot help but cry, it's not fair. People are not being treated the same. And may I suggest that we often like to say the same thing to God. The way you have treated me, God, is not fair. We say it's not fair, but whenever we are saying it's not fair, what we are actually saying is, You are not fair. Whoever has the authority to make sure that things are fair are not doing their job properly. That's what we're really saying when we are saying it's not fair, whether it's parents or governments or God. And yet as adults, just as much as children, our sense of justice may be finely tuned when we think we're being treated unfairly, but it's remarkably silent when we know we're being treated rather better than we deserve. The child who knows they're being treated better than their siblings, what do they do? They keep their mouth shut. And because of this, we may suggest we are somewhat slow to talk about God's justice. We talk about it when we feel he's not being fair to us. But in general, we don't like talking about God's justice. Because our sense of guilt tells us that if God is truly just, then we are going to be on the wrong side of his justice. That's what guilt is. Guilt is an anticipation of a punishment that we think we deserve. And so when we feel guilty before God, it's because we recognise that we deserve a punishment from God because of his justice. 
And so many Christians, perhaps some of us in this room, we prefer to talk about God's love instead of God's justice. But my aim for us this evening is that as we look at this attribute of God, what I want us to see is that God's justice is not only essential and necessary, but is also a very good and comforting thing that we should praise him for. Now, when the Bible talks about God being just, it's saying that God is righteous. In fact, the two English words, just and righteous, they both come from the same word grouping in the Bible's original languages, Greek and Hebrew. Therefore, for this talk, we will be using both English words interchangeably. So, whenever you hear the word just, have also in the back of your minds, righteous, as we go through, okay? And so with that, we're going to see five things about God and our response to him in his righteousness, his justice. From the passage that Barclay read out to us earlier in Romans chapter 3 and a few other places. And the first thing you can see on your handouts is this. Praise God. He is always just. Praise God. He is always just. Now, it's worth saying from the very beginning, God doesn't necessarily treat everybody exactly the same. For example, we're all sitting, or in my case, standing in different places in this room now, aren't we? He has also determined and chosen the exact location and time of our birth. But what we do need to know is, while he may not treat us exactly the same way in one sense, God does treat everybody, you and I, well and fairly. He treats everyone with perfect justice. Part of God's goodness, actually, is that he loves what is right and he hates what is evil. His righteousness is what we see when his goodness and his authority come together. God is good, so he loves what is good, and he hates what is evil. But he is also sovereign. He is in authority over us, and so he acts with a good authority. And that means, my friends, that we will have no sin, he will leave no sin unpunished. It's not that, you know, that there's some kind of external standard that God is forced to somehow comply with. No, this is God's righteousness and his goodness and his sovereign power. For instance, perhaps some of you here tonight were thinking, well, surely because God is love, surely it's his job to always forgive sin. But may I submit to you all, God does not have to forgive sin. He can be perfectly himself and leave sin unforgiven. This talk is going to very much focus on God's wonderful provision of a saviour for sinners. But God didn't have to do that. And we know that to be the case because there is a whole class of sinners for whom God has provided no saviour. And these are the fallen angels. There were some angels, for example, they always did what was right in God's eyes. But there were also some, we read in the Bible, who fell. And the Bible says there there is not one forgiven angel in existence. 
God provided no saviour for the angels. And he didn't have to provide a saviour for us. Because God is just. He will act in righteousness and justice. And yet, amazingly, he does so for human beings in mercy. Let's just try and work a little bit more at this. Understanding God's righteousness in terms of his authority and goodness coming together. Imagine with me a courtroom. In that courtroom, there are several people who have different roles. There is the person who is on trial, who is in the dock and for the crime that they've committed. In front of them, you've got a judge and a jury. But behind them sits their mum and their dad, and beside them sits their lawyer. And each of these people have different roles. Now, imagine also there is a journalist who has investigated the case carefully and has discovered beyond almost all doubt that this person who is on trial in the dock, they are guilty. They know that the minimum sentence for the crime they've committed is three years. And so, here is the journalist in in this courtroom with everybody else. They are reporting on the trial and they're ready for the verdict and to put it in all the tabloids. And what happens? The guilty person, in their eyes, they get off scot-free. Well, the sense of justice that this journalist has, it means that They could write about it and they could try and give evidence for a retrial, couldn't they? But that journalist should not, because of their sense of justice, sit outside the courtroom with a sack and when that person walks out scot-free, take the sack, put it over their head and drag them into the back of their car and take them home and lock them up in their own basement for three years. That wouldn't be just, would it? Because although this journalist, she has a sense of justice, knowing this person in the dock should be punished, they do not have the authority to punish them. They only have the authority to report. But for the judge, the jury, it's different, isn't it? They have a different job. A good judge must love what is right, And not only love what is good and hate what is evil, they must also acquit the innocent and condemn the guilty. And God, the God of the Bible, is such a good judge. He will not leave sin, any sin, unpunished. He loves us as a father. But as the one in authority, who alone can right every wrong in the end, He will always act justly and rightly, and we should praise him for it. God's justice, his righteousness, it's part of his goodness. Because we are not good all the time, we don't always feel that, do we? But this is part of God's goodness for which we should praise him because it means that there is such a thing as justice in this world. If there was no God there will be no justice. And so perhaps we might feel much strongly about this if we were living in Nigeria, North Korea, or Iran at the moment, and there was little hope, humanly speaking, for justice in this world. 
But in the thick of it all, we would know and be confident that there is a God who judges justly and rightly and who will judge all evil in the end. And he will right every wrong. We need to praise God. He always acts justly and rightly because he is just and righteous. Number two, let's thank God that we all know what his justice requires. And what I mean is this. It's not that God's going to suddenly spring upon people like you and I and say, oh, you should have lived like this. And we say, well, I didn't know. No, we did know. We do know. Part of God's justice is not just acting as a judge, but also as a legislator. He gives just laws, and we all know about them. You can imagine, can't you, for instance, a a judge who perfectly enforces very unjust laws. For instance, a judge in North Korea who sends Christians to be locked up for the rest of their lives for simply owning a Bible. That would be perfectly applying an unjust law. And in our, in our fallen society, may I suggest it's a good thing, a very good thing, that it's not just one person who has absolute power to do everything when it comes to law and justice. In our society in the UK, we have different people who set the laws, who then police the laws and then judge people and according to the laws. It's split up, isn't it? We have legislators, Parliament, for instance, they can set laws, the police can then enforce them, and the judiciary, the judge, they can act according to them and condemn people and equip people appropriately. And you know, this system that we have in 21st century United Kingdom, in fact, it's not new to us. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, then you'll know that there are prophets who they must rightly declare God's law There were kings who must rightly rule under God's law and there were judges who must rightly judge according to God's law. But God is the righteous lawgiver as well as the righteous ruler. And this is good because he is good. So, Psalm 119, verse 163, the psalmist says, I love your law. Seven times a day, I praise you for your righteous laws. Now, if you had been counting by that point in Psalm 119, you would notice that that is the seventh time in the psalm that the psalmist has talked about God's law and praised him for it. He is the righteous lawgiver who, whose laws are perfect. He's also the righteous ruler. Psalm 9, verse 7, the Lord, reigns, the Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. His rules are perfect and he rules the world in righteousness and judges the peoples with equity. And so God is also the righteous judge. Psalm 96, verse 13, Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And so what we're getting here is a picture as God giving righteous laws to every human being like you and I, 
not just the laws that we read in the Bible, but also the laws that are written in this world that we all know about. And they tell us that we should live for him and know him and worship him and adore him. In fact, this is part of Paul's argument that you see in the book of Romans. And so if you've got Romans open, actually, can you turn to Romans chapter 1? Just a couple of chapters before we get to our main reading. But Romans chapter 1. And just notice what Paul says in Romans 1 verse 20. Romans 1 verse 20. Paul writes this. For since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. And then Paul goes on to talk about, for the rest of chapter 1, about various different sins that all people, including you and I, commit. And these sins, they go from sexual sins to slander. And from gossip to greed. And look at the end of chapter 1. Paul concludes chapter 1 verse 32 by saying, Although they, that is all humanity, know God's righteous decrees, and that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And so Paul is saying everybody knows that we are acting in ways that deserve God's punishment. That's why we feel guilty. That's why, for instance, as a toddler, silly example, I hid behind the sofa when I stole my mum's chocolate orange. Because I I knew that the chocolate would tell of my sin. And I couldn't hide it from my face, could I? without wiping it on my hands, which still gave the game away, wouldn't it? And so I hid, because I felt guilty. And if we're honest, if we are totally honest, my friends, we all hide, don't we? Because we know that we are guilty. And then Paul goes on in the book of Romans to explain that God chose one particular nation, Israel, where they wouldn't just have God's laws that we all know about by nature, but to also receive and hear God's word in spoken and written form, the Ten Commandments, the Torah. And in Romans chapters 2 and 3, Paul targets these people particularly, who think that if they had God's laws, the Ten Commandments, then maybe they'd be better off, they'd be in a better situation, a better standing before God. Maybe they think they wouldn't deserve God's judgment. But instead, Paul says, God's law only adds to their guilt. In other words, the greater knowledge of God's righteousness, the more we ought to obey him, and yet we still fail. So, chapter 3, verse 20, Paul writes this, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of our sin. And so we need to, we should thank God that we know how to live because God has told us. Both from our conscience and more clearly in his word. 
And therefore, when people face God's judgment, the Bible is crystal clear that every mouth will be silenced. A common question that atheists get asked by journalists is something like this. You know, if it turns out that there is a God and you're going to face him on judgment day, you're going to be condemned for everything that you've said and everything you've done, what will you say in response? And you know what it's like, these atheists and so forth, they have all their clever arguments and their witty answers. But none of them, not even one, will be able to give them on the day they meet God. Because every mouth will be silenced. We all know that we should live to worship and adore the living God who made the universe and who made us and who sustains us day by day and night by night. And we all know that we don't. And so rather than hiding behind the sofa like me as a toddler, we hide behind clever arguments and excuses, don't we? Because we do not want to stare into the face of the righteous God. Before him, we cannot stand on our own two feet. We are all guilty and we are all culpable. Because God has given us his good laws. And so, point three, we should fear him. Fear God as he will punish all sin. Fear God, for he will punish all sin, including mine, including yours. God doesn't just define sin. He also punishes it. And this is something, believe me, this is something we do not want to leave God to do. We sometimes say, well, surely if God is loving, he won't punish sin. Because when we love people, we have to make compromises, don't we? We have to meet halfway, we have to negotiate, we have to strike a deal. Surely God, can't he compromise, can't he meet us halfway, can't we negotiate, won't he strike a deal and let us off the hook? Wouldn't that be the most loving thing for God to do? The thing is, Our love to others doesn't have to be just all the time, does it? Because we are not the judge. For instance, we can be like the mum and the dad of the person in the dock back in the courtroom who continue to offer their love because they don't have to be the judge or the jury. But God is our only hope for justice in this world. And if he were to ever compromise on his justice, then there is no justice at all. My friends, that is just as bad as a world where there is no love. In fact, it's the same thing. Sometimes our problem is, with the idea of God being a just God and a just judge, is that we don't want him to be the judge, do we? But we want to take it into our own hands and we want to be the judge ourselves. I don't know about you, but this is how often I find myself responding, especially when I go onto Twitter or YouTube, for instance. You know, I get triggered by something that I read or something that I watch and I want to pour out my judgment and condemnation verbally behind my keyboard, behind my phone. 
because of what someone else is thinking or speaking. And that is something that is happening more and more and more over the last few years. And in fact, it's got to a point where it's, in some cases it's become cyberbullying and it's left to, led to much harm. But we are not God. We are not, as we discussed a few weeks ago, omnipresent. We are not the one who can see everything, the motives of every human heart and every deed. No, we do not need, believe it or not, we do not need to be the judge. We can be genuine brothers and sisters to all people. We don't even need to have an opinion on what is right and what is wrong in every circumstance. That's not our job. It's not our responsibility. May I plead with you, we don't need to judge every decision that the government makes as to whether it's the wisest possible thing to do. It seems to be a national pastime at the moment, doesn't it? We don't know well enough to be the judge. And it's such good news that God does. He knows everything. And he is a perfect judge because he is good and that he is judge. Well, what about compromise? What about compromise? What about a plea bargain? You know, if we're really, really sorry, surely if we say I'm sorry for what I've done, surely God will let me off the hook. Doesn't doesn't God want to let us off? Doesn't he want to forgive us? Well, we are going to see that yes, He does. God is incredibly loving. But there is a tension between God's justice and his mercy when it comes to sinners. For instance, we read in 2 Peter chapter 3 that God does not want anybody to perish, but all to come to him in repentance. But God doesn't deal with this tension with compromise. He will not compromise between his justice and his love By saying, for instance, well, I'll let justice go just this once or just for a little while in order to give forgiveness. No, if he were to do that, he would be denying his own perfect character. He'd be denying his own goodness. If God did such a thing like that, he would be denying his justice. If he were to ever deny his justice one little bit, then he wouldn't be a good God. He wouldn't be the God of the Bible. And so this tension between God's justice and his compassion and mercy will not be resolved by compromise. But praise God, it has been resolved by another way. Meaning we need to admit, point four, admit that our only hope is Jesus Christ. Admit that our only hope is Jesus Christ. Now, to be clear... God will not merely forgive out of a sheer act of his will. And so the question is, how then will God be just and also be the one who justifies? That is, declare sinners righteous. I mean, that sounds like the height of injustice, doesn't it? You know, to take a guilty person and to declare them righteous, there would be an uproar in all the tabloids and on social media if there was a judge who consistently did that in our courtrooms, wouldn't there? And yet God has found a way. 
Romans 3, verse 23. Let's look at this together. Romans 3, verse 23. Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. This is what Paul is saying. Jesus is the place where God's justice is truly satisfied for sinners. At the cross, God poured out his justice on Jesus. If you have any questions to, as to whether God in his justice will punish every sin, then look at the cross of Christ. If there were any sin bearer whom God would ever forgive with a mere word and say your sin is washed away without pouring out his judgment upon them, surely it would have been his own son, would it not? And yet, as Christ bears our sin, the darkness of God's anger falls upon him. And he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, your own son? Because God is just. God is just and God is merciful. Because now there is not one, but two places where God's justice can be satisfied. You see, the most natural place for God's justice to be satisfied is upon us. In the place called hell. Where we bear the punishments for our sin forever. And having offended such a perfect, infinite, holy God... Such a punishment would be something we could not bear for all of eternity. But now, but now there is another place. A place of mercy as well as justice. Where God has poured out his just punishment against our sin. Not upon us, but upon that perfect, sinless sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, he is our only, he is our only hope and he is our perfect hope. And so as we come to Jesus, as we come to Jesus and put our hope and trust in him and what he has done for us, God looks upon us and he sees our sin has been taken and placed on his son. We are also then Given his son's righteousness, we are declared righteous in God's sight with Christ's righteousness. That's what the cross does. It takes away our unrighteousness. In which case, you could, you could think of it like this. You know, imagine if you've got a massive overdraft in your bank, which you know you could full well not pay in any time in your life. Well, in one way, the cross, it takes away our unrighteousness. And you could say that brings your bank balance back to zero. But it doesn't stop there. God doesn't, our unrighteousness is not just taken away, but Christ's righteousness is given to us. Our bank, as it were, is filled with an infinite amount that we could not count 
because it is the infinitely perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's awesome, isn't it? We should praise God. Praise God that this is a second way, another way, second place, in which God's justice can be truly satisfied once and for all. And if we were to come to Jesus, if we put our trust in him, our unrighteousness will be taken away and Jesus' own righteousness, perfect righteousness, infinite righteousness, unchanging righteousness, is given to us. Praise God that Jesus' sacrifice justifies sinners who believe. And that's our final heading for this evening. Praise God. Jesus' sacrifice justifies all sinners who believe. Romans 3, once more. Now looking at verses 25 and 26. Verse 25, Paul says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, that is, the mercy seat, the perfect mercy seat that that we all get in Christ, through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness, at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. In the Old Testament, there was the sacrificial, sacrificial system, isn't there? And, and once, once a year, priests would take, use bulls and, and lambs and so forth to, to demonstrate and symbolize that the sins of the people of Israel were, were laid upon them and they were then cleaned, as it were. And but now was a mercy seat in the place where God was known to be placed, as it were. But now Jesus is the perfect mercy seat. It's a once and for all sacrifice. All those sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were all pointing to the one ultimate true sacrifice and the true mercy seat that is in Jesus Christ. And so now, all of us, if we are trusting in Jesus, the perfect once and for all sacrifice, we are fully justified through faith in him. And so if you are here tonight and you're hoping that God will accept you on the basis of what you have done, I hope you've been unsettled. I hope you've been unsettled in that wishful thinking. God is just. And he is perfectly good. And therefore he is perfectly opposed to us in our sin. He is perfectly opposed to you in your sin. And yet, he calls you now. If you're not putting your trust in him yet, he is calling you now, today, this evening, this moment, to put your faith in the only hope there is. The only other place than hell where God's justice can be truly satisfied in the cross of his son. The Lord Jesus died for sinners like me and like you. And so if you entrust yourself to him, even today, you will be forgiven once and for all. Because God would have already punished your sin, not in you, but in Christ. And for those of us who are in Christ already, for those of us whom God's righteousness through Jesus is already on us, we will be praising Jesus forever because of God's perfect justice. 
praising God for his justice and mercy, the lamb that was slain. In fact, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, Jesus is described as the lamb more than any other names that he is called. A lamb, looking as though he had been slain. Because as we stand before the lamb upon the throne, we will see his wounds. The wounds which should have been ours, they will still be visible upon him. And in those wounds will be displayed the perfect justice of God and the extraordinary mercy of God. We will be praising him forever for his perfect justice. As we wait, as Barclay alluded to earlier, we pray, come Lord Jesus, come. Why don't we do that now in prayer? Paul writes, therefore, since we are justified by his blood, the blood of Jesus, through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord God, it is. We sometimes struggle to either comprehend what you did on the cross or we easily take it for granted. Lord God, we are amazed continually that you would go to that cross so that our unrighteousness could be taken away. And more than that, the perfect righteousness of your Son will be given to us. Lord God, please help us not to take that for granted, but to live each day, wanting to live for you, not to make ourselves look good or be in your good books, but because of what you have done for us. Lord, we need you to live in this broken world where there is lots of injustice and lots of hurt. Help us, Lord God, to act justly in how we speak and as we communicate and as we live out our lives, and whether it's our workplaces or on the streets. And, but while as we wait, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. We pray that that day is coming where all injustice will be will be gone once and for all. And thank you, Lord God, that the new heavens and the new earth will be a place where we'll be praising you of your perfect justice and your perfect mercy, where everyone will be treated properly and there will be no more injustice. So come, Lord Jesus. Amen.